Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. My guest today is Nick Petrikov. Nick is an analyst here at Epic, follows financial services stocks. Uh, and I know Nick has been here almost five years because uh, Nick started two days after I did uh, in November of 2014 at Epic. And I know that because, of course, you know, the, the newest employee has to raise the flag every morning, sing the company song, make the coffee. So I, I only had to do that for two days. Uh, I had one of the shortest tenures as, as the newest employee. Uh, okay, so what we're going to talk about today is a phenomenon that I think most of us years ago when we started our careers would have thought we would never see, which is negative interest rates. And right now there's something like $17 trillion in debt. I think that's the number I've heard recently that carries a negative yield to maturity right now. You know, it just seems like a bizarre phenomenon here. I'm, I'm going to buy this bond and I know that between now and when it matures, I will earn a negative return. Uh, it, it just seems baffling. So we're, we're going to look at three things. Number one, how did we get here? Uh, number two, who's buying? Who, who would buy a bond with a negative yield? And, and number three, uh, more perhaps pertinent to, from an investing point of view, is uh, what does this mean for banks? Uh, so let, let's dive right in. So Nick, how, how did we get here to this situation where we have negative yields on so much debt? Yeah, thank you, Steve. So clearly it is a, a, a very strange phenomenon and there's been plenty of discussions around academic circles and professional circles as to um, the need and, and um, the development of, of the phenomenon. I'm going to take a step back and, and kind of discuss a couple of uh, kind of structural reasons and a couple of uh, cyclical reasons for this. Clearly, it's been a long term in the making, that negative rate environment. So the first structural reason is, is re really the productivity gains that we've achieved over multiple decades um, that, that have been underappreciated by um, the market, by governments, and uh, certainly by, by central banks. Those productivity gains have essentially increased the output potential for uh, economies around the world, particularly more in the developed side, the developed economies around the world. Um, so output potential and, and full employment uh, has actually increased dramatically and what lacked um, has been the financial resource to, to create the impetus for these economies to achieve those uh, full potentials. If, if we step back, if you look at um, maybe five or six decades when we had significant problems with inflation, that was because the output gap was uh, bridged very quickly when the productivity gains were not as strong. And so back then, if, if governments or, or rather uh, central banks printed money, it was very easy to kind of bridge that output gap and, and create an inflationary environment. That has changed. So we, we've seen almost a couple of decades of declining interest rates before we even got to the negative rates environment. We've seen decades of declining interest rates essentially printing a lot of money and not creating inflation. A second, second structural, structural um, um, factor in, uh, for, for negative rates has been demographics in the developed world. Uh, we've had um, an aging population that had significant demands, aging and wealthy population that's had significant demand for yield. 
um, as, as such, the demand for yield has driven yields down, just like any other industry where, uh, where demand incre- uh, exceeds supply. You put pressure on, um, on that particular um, item. So, so that has also created pressure on yields. And so we, we have, the, so structurally uh, over decades, we've had a large amount of money being printed, pushing yields down, and then large amount of uh, demand for, for that uh, money supply that's also pushed uh, yields down. Now, fast forward to about a decade ago, we had a financial crisis. And this is where I'm going into kind of the cyclical uh, reasons for, for negative rates. We had a financial crisis and a lot of the governments um, in, in the developed world had already been stimulating economies through cycles, through uh, fiscal measures. And so by the time we got to the financial crisis, um, a lot of these governments were tapped out from a fiscal perspective. Um, so what we ended up doing was um, we emphasized again the monetary stimulus. And so the, the U.S. government was clearly first with a TARP, but then we had the European financial crisis and we had developments in Asia where significant amounts of cash was printed. Now, put that in the backdrop of the cyclical um, developments that I mentioned earlier, we printed large amounts of money and we could not create inflation, even though we tried to create inflation. That, that was not happening. So governments and central banks were emboldened to continue to do that and push the yields very low, close to zero. On top of that, we've had the European economy since the World War II really has been very much dependent on exports. I mean, Germany is a good case in point, but really most of the European countries have been doing that. Um, and then Japan certainly, um, and later on other parts of Asia have become very dependent on exports. As you depend on exports, you, you want your currency to be lower. And in order to um, drive that uh, outcome, central banks have been encouraged to lower yields as well. So the combination of these cyclical and structural uh, issues kind of set up the environment where today, uh, where <coughs> become negative and the end is not in sight. And, and what uh, role has central bank buying of bonds played? Because when, you know, Mario Draghi a few years ago said, uh, you know, do anything it takes. And, uh, and they actually just this week, uh, we're recording this in, in around September 12th or 13th, I guess, they uh, resumed quantitative easing. And part of that is they go out and they buy bonds and they don't really care what the yield is. They'll just buy it. So what, what role has that played? Because that I think the, the popular perception is it's the, the primary driver in the short term uh, has been central bank buying. Is what role do you think that has played? Yeah, clearly. So so um, that's a good segue to who's buying uh, negative yields, bonds with negative yields, but also goes to my uh, um, my point about one of the cyclical drivers for negative rates, um, which is the the fiscal stimulus point. Now, Europe is not one country clearly. And the criticism for the European Union has been that they've gone the fiscal, the the monetary way, but they haven't been able to integrate their fiscal systems. And so so when we had the Great Recession in the US and then the subsequent financial crisis in Europe with, you know, countries like the peripheral part of Europe, Italy, uh, Spain and Portugal, certainly um, Greece, when they had issues where in a kind of integrated economy, you would typically address through fiscal stimulus or fiscal transfers from wealthy to um, uh, to, to parts where uh, um, financial resources needed. 
Europe could not do that because Germany was Germany and the North in general were in opposition. So that's where the ECB came in and kind of um, did the function of a, of a fiscal transfer, essentially uh, accumulated balances of excess uh, deposits, excess liquidity from the North was channeled to the South through the central bank. And uh, by buying government bonds, that transfer went from depositors in the North to governments in the South, essentially. So, so yes, your point is, is right on. The, the European Central Bank has played a very important role in the cyclical element of pushing rates negative. And uh, do you think there's any chance rates would go negative in the US? I think we're very far from that. Um, firstly, because again, um, if, if you look at those factors that I mentioned earlier, so certainly from a cyclical perspective, the, the pressures on yields exist. We, uh, the output gap is, is very far from breaching. Um, we could put tons of liquidity in the, in the economy and not create inflation. Um, but the, cyc the cyclical element, first of all, the U.S. economy is doing very well right now. And yes, there, there are frictions around the um, trade negotiations with the rest of the world. But regardless, the, the economy is very strong. So, so the need for further stimulus is, is not evident at this point. That could change, clearly, but at this point it's not evident. The second point is that if it were evident, the, the U.S. government still has the ability to create fiscal stimulus. And, and so, so where I'm going with this is that negative rates, we'll, we'll get to that point a little bit later, but negative rates um, are not great for the financial system. Um, and to the extent that we're not, we don't have to resort to them, uh, we probably won't. And so I believe that the U.S. is not at a point where we have to go negative. Mm -hmm. Can we go? Certainly. But I don't think just yet. Okay, and, and we, we started a moment ago talking about this concept of who buys these bonds. So uh, let's talk a little bit just about the practical aspect of this. So obviously if a bond is issued with a, a positive coupon and it's issued say at par, but then people bid the price up, it, you get to the point where the yield to maturity is negative. But it, our, our bonds, obviously these governments are continuing to issue you know, longer term bonds over time. When they're issued, are they issued with negative yields or are they issued with a positive yield? Yeah, they, they are issued with negative yields right now. Um, I mean, you're right that at outset of the negative rate, um, and, and, and we, we, have to, we have to be careful about which rates we're talking about. The short-term rates, as we know, are driven by government policy. The long rates um, are typically driven by the market. Now, to the extent that the central banks interfere in that market, then yes, they could drive that as well, which is certainly happening in Europe and in Japan. But the short-term rates are really what, what the government controls, the, the uh, central bank controls. So at the outset of the program, that's the f phenomenon is exactly as you described it. A bond might have been um, issued um, a couple of months ago with, with a zero coupon or a slightly positive coupon. And when the market rates go down, then the, that bond, the value of that bond increases and the effective yield of the bond on the secondary market goes negative. Now, but that was years ago. Today, all the bonds that are issued where negative rates persist are with actual negative rates. And so who's buying that? When a yeah. government so, auctions a bond, it says, you know, you're yeah. going to give us $1,000 and in five years, we'll give you 999. Right. Who would do that? Right. So clearly one of the buyers is, uh, is the ECB right. uh, in, in Europe. And uh, 
uh, Bank of Japan in, in Japan. And those are those are formidable buyers, um, as as you might as you might remember. The ECB is committed to continuing, and, and they they were kind of scaling down that program, but now seem to be restarting it. Um, they're committed to stimulating the the lending uh, w- within the eurozone uh, with with the cap of purchasing no more than 33% of the particular issue which means that you know of a particular country so they're not going to buy more than 33% of italian bonds or or, or um, german ba- bonds but they certainly have plenty of room left and so they're they're formidable buyers on the secondary market they're not stimulating um, government purchases directly, but indirectly they are on the secondary market. The second important um, cohort of purchasers is the so-called uh, participants in the, in the basis swap uh, trades. Um, so what, what is a basis swap? It, it typically is a foreign currency buyer of a foreign bond in order to fill a liquidity gap. Uh, more specifically, imagine you are a multinational Japanese bank that um, has multinational clients around the world that bank lends to in US dollars. Now, the, the funding for that bank is predominantly in Japanese yen. So because it's difficult for the bank to source dollars in, uh, in deposits in dollars, um, what they do is they swap their deposits in yen into US dollars. Now, in the process of doing that, the demand for US dollars increases. And they get the, 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 the swap transaction, the, the hedging transaction is, is really that uh, basis swap where uh, they drive the demand for um, foreign currency, particularly for dollars. These transactions are collateralized, and which means that as the swap is affected, the, the notional amount is actually invested in foreign securities. Mm-hmm. Um, so within that transaction, the, the U.S. counterparty would actually purchase negative rate Japanese bonds, government bonds. Similarly, if a transaction is done between a European uh, counterparty and a US counterparty, the, the, the same dynamic would persist, where the, the foreign entity would um, get US dollars and sell a European bond, government bonds, to the US entity. Now, because obviously your question would be, well, why would the US entity engage in a, in a, in a situation where they would get negative? rates. And the answer is that because this transaction is typically driven by the demand of the foreign entity for U.S. dollars, then the basis swap or or the amount that the foreign entity has to pay the U.S. entity to source that liquidity is more than offsetting the negative yield. Mm -hmm. And so in that transaction, the foreign entity pays U.S. Treasury yield plus the basis swap plus the negative rate. So mm. this is a, a feasible transaction driven by the need of foreign entities to source U.S. liquidity. Hmm. The third imp- formidable buyer of, of negative uh, rate bonds is um, are pension funds and life insurance companies. Now, for pension funds, when you have very long-term liabilities, we're talking 20, 30-year liabilities, because some of the participants in these pension funds are employees in their 30s and, and 40s. So they, they have a long way until uh, they need to withdraw that cash back. And there's really no choice if you need to have long-term liability. You, you have to buy government securities. And they try to make up for the cost of that because they're not getting paid for it. Uh, you, you would say, well, why would you buy it? Well, because cash is not an option. You have to own securities. And 
through different swaps, they try to minimize the, um, the impact of the negative rates. But at the end of the day, what's more important for them is to match the liability and, uh, and assets um, rather than worry about the near-term impact from the negative rates. Right. When you say, well, cash is not an option, of course, we tend, over the years, we've tended to think in our minds of, of cash as really being sort of short-term government securities. But right. if those have a negative yield, right. your only alternative is, is literal cash, currency, holding right. physical currency. And that's just impractical if you've got to hold billions and billions of, of euros or yen or whatever. You know, you can't have that sitting around. The storage costs, that would, that would sort of carry a negative yield too, because you've got to literally pay for vaults to keep all that cash. That's cetera. exactly right. So, uh, yeah. Cash, cash is not free. But also there's another element to that. Um, accounting rules require, re accounting and capital rules really, because these pension funds have to be funded and capitalized. And, and those require a matching of assets and liability duration. Because when interest rates move, you could have significant impacts on, on uh, the asset liability uh, matching situation if you're holding a short-term security like cash versus a long-term liability. So that's another reason. And then for life insurance companies, the dynamics are very similar, although they have even additional restrictions in terms of um, the type of risk that they could take. So one of the other phrases besides whatever it takes that has come to prominence in the last decade is the, you know, TINA, there is no alternative, you know, T-I-N-A. And um, the idea was that by keeping rates so low or now even pushing them negative, they're gonna force people with capital to move it into higher risk uh, investments. But the idea was if you make this capital more available, more easily available to you know, companies, whatever, that it would, it would stimulate economic growth. But it's not clear that that has really worked. Uh, you know, we, um, We've had the second quarter, so a negative GDP growth, you know, Q on Q in, um, uh, in Germany and, and the UK actually as well. So anyway, it's, it's not clear that this policy has really worked. And I wonder if central banks are, <laughs> what their thoughts are on this and are they going to reconsider this? Um, but I, I don't know if you have I, any thoughts on that. I absolutely agree with you that, that the stimulating part of this equation is just not there. We have significant amounts of liquidity um, at, at uh, on corporate ba balance sheets. And um, just because rates are even zero, let alone negative, does that mean if, if they don't need to invest in capital or if their working capital needs are perfectly met, they don't need more debt. And it doesn't matter if it's minus five or minus 10%. Right. They just don't need it. Right. This um, is where we get the expression pushing on a string. Exactly. Yeah. But again, going, going back to my original points about how we got here, currently negative rates are maintaining um, a foreign exchange balance that is satisfactory to, to Europe and, and Japan, because otherwise their currencies would, would have been right. different. Right. And so there's, there's economic stimulus through lowering their currencies. Right. That's the only benefit that I could see at this point. Were you going to say something else? Yes, yeah, so I was going to say the, la the last, uh, and, and it's, this is the most unlikely um, unexpected purchaser of uh, negative rate bonds of size is really index funds. And, and this, is, this is unfortunate, but this is inertia um, because a lot of, like I said, baby boomers or um, not, not necessarily only through pension uh, programs like defined contribution or, uh, or defined benefits, people go out there and buy um, bond index funds. And they don't realize that a good portion of that index fund is invested in government securities. And mm -hmm. those securities are actually yielding negative rates. But because these are typically the aggregate type of fixed income securities funds, 
they also have corporate debt in them, mortgages and other things that actually have positive yields because they have spread. And the overall yield of the fund is positive, which masks the fact that right. it actually holds significant amounts of negative rate bonds in it. Right. So that's right. the kind of unfortunate purchaser. Right. Of. Plays right into uh, the limits of theory paper that we talked about in the previous uh, podcast, where just because something's in an index is not a reason to own it from right. an investment perspective. That's right. Okay. So let's um, let's finish up with some discussion on banks yeah. and what does the, what do negative yields mean for banks? Because the traditional view is you know banks borrow short, they lend long, but if long rates are so low, how do they make any money? Yeah, so, so you, you hit the nail on, on, um, uh, on the head. Certainly, negative rates are not good for the financial system, not just for banks, but for all, think about insurers, think about all entities involved, uh, because that distorts the cost of money. And this is what the financial system does. It, it, um, um, it tries to determine that and distribute uh, financial assets based on their cost. So that distorts everything. Now, banks are in the center of that. And the traditional view has been that banks um, borrow short, namely get short-term deposits, and lend long, namely um, longer-term loans like uh, mortgage loans and car loans or corporate loans that have maturities and durations of in excess of five to 10 years. So, but I, I would say that there's a bit of a misconception in that because when interest rates are high, banks can do that. When, when interest rates in the economy are in the 4 or 5% range, uh, banks can afford to pay 2 to 3% for deposits um, and then um, have, a, have a mortgage spread that's beyond the risk cost of that mortgage um, and therefore make money just because of the duration mismatch. However, when interest rates are very low, which has been the case even prior to becoming negative, they, they were very low for quite a bit of time, um, that game, so to speak, is, um, it, it does not work. Banks no longer do. They haven't been doing that for over a decade. Now, it's important to emphasize what banks are. They truly are asset managers. They take resources from um, depositors and they invest these into loans. And as they do that, um, their sole purpose is to do a proper underwriting, which would ensure that most of these resources that are lent out will come back so they could, so they could return the money back to the depositors. And we have regulators, uh, central banks, um, FDIC type of um, uh, agencies that ensure that banks are in, in fact doing exactly that. They're, they're uh, lending responsibly. And so as such, um, banks charge an, an interest rate spread that covers the risk for the uh, borrowers not paying, um, the, the, the so-called credit risk. And so this is regardless of the funding cost. So if, if the deposits cost to the bank, zero, 1%, 4%, or negative 50 basis points, the spread that banks charge on top of that is what determines banks' profitability, theoretically. Um, and that has actually been the case in reality as well. If you look at the Danish banking system, which, um, like I said, Denmark was the first country to um, imp implement negative rates in 2012, for the last seven years, Danish banks have been profitable. 
And if you look at their net interest margin, which is the difference between what they pay for resources, for financial resource and, and what they gain from lending that or buying securities, it's been 1%, very persistent. The rates have uh, been moving up and down, the funding rates, and their, their spread has been about 1%. So from that perspective, uh, banks have been um, helped by going back to their roots. Um, however, um, the, the, the longer term impacts are real. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, in addition to lending, banks also have security portfolios. And those security portfolios, to a large extent, have government bonds in them. And the duration of these bonds is relatively long. Um, and, and the lower the rates, the, the longer that duration uh, happens to be because they kind of go out on the curve. And as they roll those, they reinvest them at much lower yields. And in Denmark, that's already um, uh, obvious. And in Europe, it's less so because they still have bonds that are, that are, when they were issued, they hold them to maturity. So the market movements are less relevant, but these bonds are still yielding positive rates. And as they mature, they have to reinvest them at a lower rate. So that puts pressure on profitability because there's no credit spread per se as, as the one that I described for the loan portfolios. So the longer this goes on, actually, it might start to become troublesome for the banks. Well, it, it, it has been troublesome yeah, in yeah. terms of it's been lowering their profitability. Right. Um, and it will continue to do so. Now, there's going to be a point, and I think Japan's reached that point, um, where the profitability is just going to be limited to the credit spread. And, of course, the, the good news is that when rates are so low, the credit environment happens to be pretty good. Just fewer and fewer companies default. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that we, we cannot get into a recessionary environment with negative rates, which would be problematic because at that point you have very low spreads for credit. Um, and if you have a, a credit situation, then banks' profitability is going to be compromised. Right. So you're absolutely right that the longer this goes, the more problematic it will become. But it's not an, an immediate death to banks. As, as again, the, the Danish example is very good. Seven years into that, Danish banks are still quite profitable. Their return on equity is close to 10%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what I would conclude uh, as far as banks are concerned is that it, it really depends on the banking structure, the banking industry structure. So if, if the banks, so in the United States, for example, we have about 6,000 banks, and you would think that the, the competition would be very fierce. But, and it is, however, it's not unreasonable. Banks are competing with each other, but they're not going below the level of profitability that would ensure their solvency and liquidity for the long term. Of course, that's helped because the regulator is, is making sure that's the case, but also the owners of bank capital, which is us shareholders, make sure that uh, they behave, and they do. In Japan, for example, it's a slightly different story where banks, and that's very similar in Germany, by the way, where banks uh, um, um, are doing a social service, essentially. They, they are helping corporates thrive. And, and so regardless of cost and profitability, banks are out there to provide credit. And so they compete to the point where their profitability is very, very low. And if you talk to Japanese um, Japanese bank management teams, 
very often they will tell you that, that well, the environment is very good for credit. We don't have to worry about that. So lower profitability is okay. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that because obviously when the cycle hits, which it always does, right. that dynamic will be different. Right. It's a view of banks almost as public utilities. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. It's been really been very interesting. I've learned a lot. Uh, again, my guest has been Nick Petrikov, financials analyst here at Epic. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you again soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on Epic's research, analysis, and assumptions made by Epic. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by Epic. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable. You cannot invest directly in an index, which also does not take into account trading commissions and costs.